Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello, you are very welcome to The Tonight Show. UK's currency crashes, prompting the IMF and Bank of England to step in on the one day and opposition parties to cry foul. Sometimes when the pound falls, it's because of external factors, international factors. This is self-inflicted. One of the government's flagship budget announcements is criticised by GPs, but the health minister is not returning. If you wait for the perfect, and if you wait for everybody to be satisfied that everything they need is in place before we do the right thing, sometimes the right thing takes far too long to happen. And later we take a look at why a major gas pipeline in the Baltic Sea was blown up and who the EU are pointing the finger at. Join the conversation online with your comments and your questions. As always, it's hashtag tonight, VMTV. number of days our economic eyes have been focused right here at home and the comings and goings of the budget. But across the water, the economy is in chaos. Five days after Liz Truss's government set out its stall in a mini budget, the pound is still in turmoil, prompting interventions from the Bank of England and the IMF. This is not just a UK issue. This is a UK fueling a global development that is resulting in significant damage both to global markets and the global economy. Ireland is, of course, keeping an eye on what its nearest neighbour is up to. Here's what the Tonister was saying earlier. We are obviously paying attention to what happens next door. It is our nearest neighbour and one of our biggest trading partners. Um, and just as, as is the case with the United States or the Eurozone, um, if one of our major trading partners goes into recession, that has an impact on us. Well, just a little earlier, I spoke to Lewis Goodall, presenter of the podcast, The News Agents, and I began by asking him if the chaos in Stirling was caused just by the mini-budget last Friday. Well, look, I mean, I suppose you can say that in terms of Stirling, which has been on the decline for some time, you can tell a long and a short story about that. It's basically on and off been uh, on the decline since Brexit. Um, it's also been declining, in fairness, uh, like many other currencies, like the euro or the yen, against the dollar for some time because of all the Federal Reserve's putting up interest rates in America more quickly. And obviously, times of economic uncertainty, investors flood, uh, flood to the dollar. But, you know, things were reasonably stable. And then what happened? Friday happened. And Kwasi Kwarteng made a statement to the House of Commons, which is basically a budget. Let's call it a budget because that's what it was. Um, a statement he didn't need to make. And it was done in a way 
that spooked the markets significantly. You know, the thing is, is that normally when the Bank of England starts to intervene on something like this, it's a, res a result of an external shock, right? It's a result of, you know, what's going on in Ukraine or the 2008 crash, something that can't really be said to be the fault of the British government or any particular government. But this is very unusual that we've had significant economic intervention come from the Bank of England off the back of something that the Chancellor of the Exchequer himself has done. And that's the Bank of England's reaction. But internationally, the reaction has been interesting too. I mean, you have the Bank of America calling this policy toxic and the IMF basically calling on the UK to change tack. I mean, how damaging is this to your reputation internationally, do you think? Well, I think it is absolutely damaging. Of course it is. Look, people remember the IMF getting involved um, in the 1970s, Britain having to go to a loan to get a loan from the IMF. That is a, a legacy which has lingered within British politics. People still talk about it now as a moment of national humiliation. Now, we're not we're not there yet. Uh, we're not necessarily close to being there yet. But clearly, it's problematic. And look, there is an international interest in this from America, from the Federal Reserve, uh, from the rest of Europe, of course, because Britain and London is one of the preeminent centres of international financial markets. And, you know, in this sense, if Britain uh, sneezes, then the rest of the world will very quickly catch a cold. And, you know, we know now today that the that uh, there were a number of very large pension funds that were essentially on the brink of insolvency this afternoon. Had it not been for the Bank of England getting involved in the way they did, they may well have become insolvent. And had that, if that ha had happened, then you would have seen that act as a contagion through other financial uh, markets. You know, Britain may well have ended up in a very unhappy position of essentially being one big national Lehman Brothers. And that, as I say, off the back of uh, an intervention made by the UK government is astounding. And yet, I mean, despite the calls for some of these policies to be abandoned or, you know, a U-turn, there doesn't seem to be any sign of that. No, we haven't heard from the Prime Minister or the Chancellor. Um, you know, number 10, I think, are deciding to not avoid being seen to be responding to this because if they do so, they think it gives them an air of confidence. Now, there are a lot of, and not of panic, and there are a lot of Conservative MPs who are, don't necessarily agree with that uh, tonight. But look, I think that the problem is if they withdraw, if they retreat, if Kwasi Kwarteng, the Chancellor, will resign, what is the point of the trust government? This is literally, this agenda, this programme is quite literally what Liz Truss won the Conservative leadership on. So if you don't have Trussonomics, what is the point of Liz Truss? So they're in now between a rock and a hard place where the economics really isn't working, but to resile, to retreat from the economics would be potentially lethal in terms of the politics, or at least in terms of the politics of her survival yeah. and the government's survival. So it is very, very difficult. So, so Truss and Quarteng have to stay the course here. They're joined at the hip. But what about the rest of the Conservative Party? I mean, when they're called back into Parliament, when they're being interviewed by, you know, presenters, broadcasters like yourself, Lewis, what are they going to say? How are they going to justify this and say, this is the right course I think it is going to be very, very difficult. And, you know, that is why there are a lot of very unhappy Conservative MPs this evening. Um, I think their hope is, their hope is that think the Bank of England, what the Bank of England has done is stabilise things and that they can try and say, right, we've got through that, but the overall plan 
is a sound one. Now, there was lots of quite dodgy or interesting politics that a lot of Conservatives MPs were unhappy about the sort of substance of the plan in the first place. Um, but look, I think the thing is, one thing that Truss and Kwarteng have in their favour, particularly Truss, is that they've only been in office for a matter of weeks. And there is, even with people who don't like them and that don't like this plan within the Conservative Party, there is a sense that we can't just replace, we've just replaced one prime minister with another. It would be the point of absurdity of replacing the successor only weeks having, after having taken over. But, I mean, I think even that, that will get her a long way. But, of course, there does come a point, if the markets did start to react really, really badly again, if there was further instability, well, the pressure on her would become very, very significant indeed. All right, look, we will leave it there. Uh, thanks so much for your time. Interesting, as always, Lewis. My pleasure. Lewis Goodall from the News Agents podcast there. Well, let's bring in my panel this evening. I'm joined by Fiona Sheehan, Ireland editor at independent.ie, Niall Collins, Minister of State for Skills and Further Education, Senator Marie Sherlock of Labour, and Donica Obeokan, Professor of Politics at DCU. You're all very welcome to the programme. Donica, I want to start with you. Look, most new Prime Ministers, they do get a bit of a honeymoon period. That hasn't happened to Liz Truss. But as Lewis was saying there, it is all of their own making. They didn't have to do this the way they did it at this time. So what's the mindset? What's the thinking here? Well, this is a very ideological government. Um, you know, they're kind of energised radicals, Brexiteer fundamentalists. And this is the cohort that, you know, produced Liz Truss. She was popular with the membership. She's not particularly popular within the parliamentary party. And I think that may be something to look into later. Only a third of the parliamentary party voted for her. So she's on quite a short leash. You know, she's staying silent during this moment of crisis. Uh, that's unsustainable in the long term. Now, she's not a naturally good communicator, but she will need to step into the breach and explain to the British people what she's willing to do. I mean, only a week ago, you know, we had this narrative from the, the British establishment that everybody was all in this together with the Queen's funeral, all one nation. And, and then this, these announcements, essentially, that are clearly benefiting the wealthier in, in Britain. It's not something that's politically astute uh, during a cost of living crisis to kind of remove the caps of bankers and to remove the top rate of, of income tax. So, uh, you know, as, 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 as Lewis said, I mean, like she's, she's just been made prime minister. This is the fourth prime minister in six years. They can't let her go immediately. But at the same time, you have to feel that she's already beginning to limp rather than having a stride. She should be in her stride now with a honeymoon uh, and she's already in trouble. But is there something to say with the British psyche at the moment? You know, they've, they've got rid of the shackles of Europe. They can do what they like. They're a big country, big thinking, we'll survive this. There is. They're acting like they're the USA, that they're the preeminent economy in the world, and, and they're not. And, and, and this is essentially what led to Brexit. Brexit in itself is a problem, but it's a symptom of a much deeper problem, a move to the right in British politics uh, and, and a kind of a, a separation from reality. It's something, when you compare our budget here, we'll say, and, and what the British are doing, I mean, the, you know, here we recognise we're a small state in a globalised economy. Britain has illusions of grandeur, almost going back to a previous era, which they'd like to return to. We would to. never do this. We would never do this. It's politically... Uh, you know, impossible. We know, we know our place, but Britain, unfortunately, is a middle-sized economy in a global world, and it's acting, as I said, as if it's like still ruling the, the waves. Yeah, uh, Fiona, it is actually quite strange, I think, because we've always looked across at our big neighbour. We could hear Lewis saying there, you know, it's a really respected uh, economy, and to watch them sort of 
self-immolate like this is kind of fascinating. Yeah, it, it's followed the, the political decline, you'd have to say, in, in standards that we've uh, observed uh, in Westminster over, over the past half dozen years. Uh, since the, the Brexit vote, or you can go back for Nat David Cameron even giving in to that uh, cause in, in, in the first place. And now we are seeing uh, this, this scenario play out where a, a new Chancellor of the Exchequer has been called on to resign. That's the only means for the, the Prime Minister to, to cling on. I mean, it, it has knock-on consequences for us. Obviously, our, our exporters now straight away are not getting bang for their bang for their book, bang for their their, their pound. Just to be uh, clear, sterling to the euro, I think it was one pound sterling to about one ten. Yeah, effectively evening, for for a euro you're getting ninety ninety P. Um I mean usually you'll be getting what, eighty three, eighty five, something like that, like that. So that that's gonna hit uh, anybody involved in exporting, anybody going to shopping in the UK, it's, it's great, or if you're going across the border. This weekend from, from Donegal to Derry, uh, it'll be very, very handsome. Um, but it, it will have knock-on effects for us just because they are our near neighbour. I mean, thankfully we're we're insulated from them to to a degree as part of the of the euro. Uh, but in in terms of investment into the UK, their housing market, their pension funds, that contagion can spread to us because we are such a close trading partner with them. And also we obviously have have the concerns for the fact that we are so culturally tied to them. With large sections of our own population living over there. Uh, now, is the government concerned about this contagion that uh, Fiona talks about? Yeah, we, we'd, we'd have to be concerned because so much of our economy, particularly our SME base, uh, trades with the UK. And when, when we talk... Uh, our tourism uh, uh, from the UK is incredibly important too. Uh, absolutely. But like when we talk about business and SMEs, we're, we're talking about jobs, sustaining jobs. And we, we've had all of that discussion over the last number of days in relation to our budget and bringing on the uh, the energy, the, you know, the, the support scheme to help uh, businesses sustain during energy. But like, th there's a lot playing out. I, I think uh, how Liz Truss reacts tomorrow and the day after will, will really, uh, I think, tell a lot. We, we've had silence. Uh, and I yeah, we understand she's going to do a number of sort of local BBC radio stations tomorrow morning. I think they all have five minutes each. None of the big broadcasters getting a chance, but she is speaking to some of the local radio stations. Yeah, and, you know, why not, why not do it on the big stage? There's calls for... Uh, for parliamentary recalled, the opposition are looking for parliamentary recall, they're looking for the budget to be reversed. I mean, the intervention by the Bank of England was, was huge. The IMF have had a really strong statement. This is one of the G8 uh, nations of the globe, uh, you know, being called, to, being called to book, really. So it, it is really uh, very, very concerning. And when you look at how, uh, how things have flipped in the 10 years, if you look at the, the financial uh, collapse that we endured and suffered back in 2008, 9 and 10, uh, you know, England, uh, the UK back then lent us money. They were one of the funders at the time, along with the IMF, that stepped in uh, to lend us money. And you flip it over now to bring it to present day. Well, we'll be lending to them. When you look at how, how our, you know, we could deliver a budget of 11 billion without having to borrow a cent, whereas they're borrowing to fund tax cuts. They brought in that price cap on energy, which is a, an unlimited... Uh, you know, liability that they've signed up to in terms of the energy companies. So the, the dichotomy is just not lost on people. Um, very briefly, uh, Marie, does this mean your namesake, the Labour Party in the UK, is going to walk into power and do they just have to sit back and let the chaos unfold? 
Well, obviously, there's a, 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 a growing argument uh, and, and, and we very firmly believe, of course, that the Labour Party in the UK should should be in power, like as in it's an act of absolute political recklessness and political vanity by the Tories at the moment. But I think just to pick up on a point there, like we know that there's about 170,000 jobs in this country that are dependent on trade with the UK. And when we see the, 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 the sharp fall in sterling over the last number of days, like this is going to put jobs at risk, particularly, you know, we know over half of those companies have less than 10 employees. So their ability to be able to withstand, you know, the, the energy, uh, the escalation energy costs. And, and, Very and, difficult last couple of years they've a, all experienced. Absolutely. And now this on top of it. And so there's, there's a very real concern and we need to make sure that no jobs go under in this country because of this. You know, we, we don't know how long this crisis is going to last. Um, we saw the 65 billion, uh, I suppose, fall back from, from the Bank of England today. So but, what can um, be done then, do you think, at this point, to perhaps protect those jobs, protect those businesses who might be exposed um, to this fall in sterling? Well, I suppose for a long time now, we've been talking in the Labour Party about a short-term work scheme, particularly if, if, if workers are put in temporary layoff to, to ensure that they don't have that cliff fall in, in earnings. Um, we, you know, in the context of the budget, we're calling for, a, a, you know, a, a, I suppose a replacement wage subsidy scheme to deal with energy costs. But I think as well, those exporting to Britain now, we need to ensure that jobs and livelihoods are protected because people cannot okay, afford to lose very, any income. Briefly, Nigel. Yeah, yeah, just, and I think it's a fair point that Marie makes it, but just look at the experience during COVID. Government was able to react quickly. And what we saw in our budget yesterday was money put into a pension reserve fund. You know, so we have a rainy day fund and obviously government, everybody's going to be monitoring what's going on in the UK. And um, if we have to step in, to help SMEs, government won't be found wanting when the time, if the time comes. Well, let's look um, at what's happening on the border because often the fall in sterling affects that region. Mm. First, I'm joined live on Skype by Paddy Malone from the Dundalk Chamber of Commerce. Uh, good evening to you, Paddy. Look, I know this has happened before. I'm sure businesses in Dundalk don't go into panic mode. This is nothing new to them. But is there some concern now that people will be driving towards Dundalk to do the weekly shop and they think, you know what, we could just go a bit further and go to Newry and, and um, use our stronger euro there? Look, we've lived with this for 43 years and we live with it again. Irish, the retail sector in Dundalk and in the surrounding counties and even up to Kenny and all along the border, and you're well aware of this, has learned how to live with this for the last 43 years. So we're competitive. We're not afraid of any taking anybody on. And one of the things that came across when COVID hit was that we were ready for any inter any um, trade that was going on on the internet and everything else, we were able to cope with it. Yes, it's always going to be a challenge. Yes, there will be some shift. It was quiet today in the main street, in Cambrassan Street, but it's it's the movement isn't enough to cause a catastrophic disaster. It would need to be significantly more than that. As uh, Finnan was saying there, it's about 5p of a fall. So if you were spending 200 quid, it's a tenner. But the time you put the diesel in the car or the petrol in the car and you drive down and you put up with the queues that, that are in Uri at the moment, it's just not worth it. So we're not concerned. And the other thing is that those shops that are selling and staring now have to restock in Uri. And are we going to restock in Euro or in Doro? So it'll be rectified before Christmas. So we're not concerned about it over, over, overly. So you don't think there are these great savings to be made 
in uh, Northern yeah, Ireland. I'm an accountant by profession, and I look at the total cost when you do something like that. So I include the petrol, I include the time, and I include the frustration, and probably the, the, the cup of coffee and the bun that you buy uh, to simply calm down after you put up with the traffic. <laughs> Um, is it not difficult, though, for businesses along the border to deal with this sort of boom-bust, boom-bust cycle? It's, it's a nightmare. It's a nightmare. Look, if I'm, going to an account, if I'm going to the bank looking for a loan for a client of mine for revamping the shop or whatever else, one of the first things that I have to address, and I do it before I even give the submission to the bank, is I address the question of, is this business exposed to fluctuations with sterling? And if it is, we just simply admit it and we're up front about it and we say we can still cope with it. But it is a nuisance and it's, it's, it's a problem that we've had for, forever. And it's why within the chamber, we would actually work very closely with Newry Chamber to try and smooth out these problems so that we both win rather than a winner and a loser, because that's something we don't like. All right, I just want to go back to my panel here because, Fiona, one of the other things that's been promised from um, the UK is a return of VAT-free shopping. Now, it won't apply in Northern Ireland, mm. but it means you'll be able to go and basically get duty-free prices on the high street in the UK. That's got to be of concern. OK, but we can't complain about a system that we operate ourselves here for, for tourists uh, from... For American uh, tourists. American tourists yeah. now outside the EU uh, coming here. So, yeah, it, it'll make it... Uh, if the sterling stays at, at the level it is now and you're getting that, that additional bonus of, of the VAT back, then yeah, it'll, it'll make it an attractive destination, particularly coming up to coming up to Christmas. But, you know, as Paddy says, there's only so much of that that you can, you can have. We already have, uh, over the years, have had destinations that people will go to to do, do their shopping abroad. So I don't but see it's a different time now, changer. isn't it, Niall? Because... We are in the middle of a cost of living crisis. People are really budgeting. People are looking at what they're spending on every single item and trying to see if they can find a bargain or make savings. Does that concern you? Yeah, look, I mean, I, I don't think, um, I, I think the, um, what you've described in terms of the offering VAT-free shopping, I, I don't think that's an issue. It's not a concern for me because the cost of travel, the cost of flying to the UK is, you know, air, tra air travel has, things, got, has yeah. gone way up. So I, I really don't see that as being an issue. Obviously, the cost of living um, issues which are out there, everybody's shopping around now looking for value. Uh, that just goes without saying. All right. I just want to just ask one last question uh, to Donica. Liz Truss, what do you think is going to happen now? I mean... To replace her now would be absurd. They simply can't do that in the Conservative Party. But if things get worse, what's going to happen? Well, I, firstly, Britain's reputation has been brought through the mud. I mean, the Conservative Party had a reputation of being fiscally conservative, economically prudent. Now that's completely damaged. You know, there's a certain nostalgia in the Conservative Party. They seem to be locked into a vision that's based on the past. There's a sense that Liz Truss is kind of like a, you know, pound shop Thatcher. Uh, except Thatcher was operating in a very different time. Margarine you know, Thatcher, I think. Is yeah, well, even, I mean, Thatcher isn't what it used to be. The pound isn't what it used to be. Um, you know, it's, uh, Britain was in, you know, back in the 1980s when Thatcher was in vogue, she was, you know, Britain was in the European Union. She was, she was inheriting stagflation, deregulation made sense. And she had an ideological friend in the White House in Ronald Reagan who said that the national debt could, was so big it could look after itself. Whereas she's in a very different world. She's outside the European Union. She doesn't have that friend in the White House. In fact, Joe Biden is giving her the opposite signal saying that, you know, a, a trade agreement isn't in the offing. And, and I don't see where they can deregulate anymore. They've already deregulated, deregulated quite enough. So, so it's a difficult world, very difficult world now for, for Liz Truss going forward. But as I said, 
They'd be reluctant to ditch her, having just, uh, you know, got rid of three prime ministers in the space of six years. So I think they're stuck with her for the foreseeable future. Interesting times ahead. Well, my thanks to Paddy Malone on Skype and Donica will be back with us later in the show. But Fiona, Niall and Marie are staying with us as we take a look at one of the government's flagship budget announcements and why it has upset GPs. Well, the fallout from Budget 2023 is in full swing and among the many things announced by the government, one has GPs up in arms. The government said more than four... Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc., 100,000 people will get a GP visit card, leaving practitioners asking how they would be able to facilitate the extra work and how they weren't told in advance. Well, here's what the health minister had to say. If you wait for the perfect and if you wait for everybody to be satisfied that everything they need is in place before we do the right thing, sometimes the right thing takes far too long to happen. Um, We've been in informal talks with the IMO for the past few weeks Um, We're aware of their concerns. So what I would say to anyone in general practice who is nervous about this, I understand that nervousness because many GPs uh, aren't getting to their patients as quickly as they want. Fiona Sheehan, Niall Collins and Marie Sherlock are still with me and I'm also joined in studio by clinical editor at the Medical Independent, Priscilla Lynch and I'm joined on Skype this evening by GP Alona Duffy. I just want to come to you quickly, Priscilla. How exactly does this GP visit card work? Well, it covers free uh, access to GPs, uh, so that visit is covered. It doesn't cover, say, other public health services that a full medical card would cover and prescription charges. So essentially just the visit to the GP, but obviously it's a valuable commodity for patients. And uh, at the moment, uh, people who are over the age of 70 have a free GP visit card and also uh, children up to the age of six as well. 
So who's in this new cohort, this 400,000 extra patients? Well, essentially, it's going to be the extension to seven, uh, sorry, six and seven-year-olds this year, which was already promised uh, in the budget last year as part of the programme uh, for government, extending it up to the age of 12 years, which they're already quite behind with. So about 78,000 of those uh, extra patients will be um, six and seven-year-olds. Then the rest will be people who are, sorry, households that will be earning up to 46,000. So that particular cutoff point is being rolled out. And they think that that, in total with the six and seven-year-olds, will mean that an additional 430,000 people in 2023 will be eligible for free GP care. Um, so this would actually double... By 2023, so yeah, 2023. four months' time. Uh, by the end of next year, really. When they say next year, you know, uh, yourself, it's a phased-in uh, basis. So, But again, it's a nearly doubling the amount of people who would be entitled to free GP visits. Uh, we also have about 1.7 million uh, GP, uh, sorry, full medical cards as well. So uh, it's quite an extra workload for GPs to take on because when people do get access for free to GPs, they do increase their amount of visits. All right, well, I want to speak to a GP, to Dr Alona Duffy, who is joining us on Skype this evening. Uh, Dr Duffy, what was your reaction when you heard 400,000 new patients uh, who will be entitled to this GP card? Well, I suppose we're all a bit stunned because it clearly proves that um, this government haven't been listening to a story that's been in the media almost every week, which is the GP crisis and the fact that 80% of GP practices around the country are closed to new patients and more and more GPs and their patients are complaining, as you already said, about the difficulties in getting to see us because our workload is ever increasing. The demands on our service and the transfer from secondary care to primary care just continues, along with the fact that what we do has become more complicated and more complex as we deal with people with multiple illnesses an older population and also uh, people coming to our country who have greater healthcare needs. Now, these 400,000 people, you would assume, are probably already registered with a GP. The majority will be, but I think as Priscilla said, there are two types of medical cards. So there's the full medical card that provides free access to all care and medication and hospital services. The doctor visit card is very much limited to general practice, which means it front loads us with the expectations and the, and the demands of the patients. So, for example, you can't see a public health nurse if you don't have a full medical card. So a doctor visit card means you can't access lots of services and therefore the one person you can go to who you can get it for free will be a GP. So we will definitely see a huge increase in workload, which has already been proven with the introduction of the under sixes. When again, the HSC and the then Minister for Health said there won't be an uplift in your work. It won't be that bad. Yet we saw that it was one of the tipping kind of features that led us into the real crisis that we face at the moment. Uh, Niall, GPs saying there we weren't consulted and the government clearly haven't heard us. We're at max capacity here. Yeah, well, I can, I can understand it because I suppose I've an interest to declare my wife, Emer, is a GP in Limerick, so I know a little bit about it. Um, look, I, Is she I, happy I, with this move? Well, uh, just let me let me give you the government point of view anyway. The, look, we, we, we've made the announcement. Um, it's a statement of intent. Um, we have Slauncher Care coming down the tracks. We're working on that, as you know. Uh, we're trying to expand uh, the, the range of or the availability of healthcare to people. We're trying to remove the barriers and the costs to it. So what we had in terms of the budget was an announcement, a statement of intent to broaden the accessibility to our GPs. Now, I accept everything that Dr. Alona is saying in terms of the, the pressures that they're under. Um, um, that's undisputed. Um, my own department- And do you accept this will add to those pressures? Well, what I want to say to you is that government, we're trying to build capacity into the system where we've created more uh, places in medicine 
uh, the numbers of people who will be admitted into GP training schemes will triple uh, from 2009 up to 2030. Um, you know, that's a significant cohort. More people will be trained. There's more resources being put in, obviously, to GPs, helping them with the various um, aspects and facets of uh, the supports that they get in their practices. And there's a significant um, rollout and capital investment in primary care centres around the country. I'm not dismissing or, or uh, in denial of any of the pressures. Of course, it's, of course, there is huge pressures. There's capacity issues. We have a growing population. These are all the everyday challenges that we're dealing with. Uh, but the resources are being put in are being put into healthcare. We see the the, okay. the, the, the total budget for for health has increased by a quarter to an excess of twenty. Billion, okay, well, let me just um, put that back in, in the last number of years. to Alona Duffy. Now, Collins, Alona, saying there is extra capacity being created and you will be given the extra resources to deal with this. Well, I, I can tell you now there's no extra capacity there at the moment. And yes, and new funding has been created for general practice, but that's for new work. And the reality of it is that what this programme is going to do is see extra demand on general practice, meaning that the people who are registered with GPs are going to find it more difficult to access their GPs. And areas like the out-of-hours service are become to become more overloaded. So what we can't forget is that 14% of the active GP population at this time are over the age of 65. They're actively ready to retire. We're seeing retirements coming in younger GPs as well. And given that 25% of GPs are over 60, even with the increased numbers going into training, we know that we're not training like for like because many of the newer GPs are choosing to, to maybe do three, four days a week because they're long days and perhaps something else have a special interest as well. Alona, is so there we any capacity double the number. in your particular practice? If I wanted to join your practice as a patient, could I? Our practice has been closed for four years. There isn't a practice in the whole of County Monaghan open to new patients. So I can tell you every day we get emails, phone calls and people walking into the surgery asking if we can register them. We can't do it because if okay. we continue to take patients, we make the service unsafe. Listen to that, Niall Collins. Not one GP practice in the whole of County Monaghan can take on new patients. They don't sound like they've got capacity for extra workload. Yeah, and I'm aware of that, and uh, I'm alone uh, saying it's unsafe within my own constituency across County Limerick. I, I hear uh, I hear instances of that also. But my, my message my message to our viewers is that government is aware of it. We're trying to resource it. We're trying to train extra doctors. We're trying to train extra GPs. That has all been factored in. It does take time. We have to appreciate it. it does take, it's no different. Uh, look, I mean, um, I, I met the other day with a bunch of, of vets. The whole area of veterinary is the same. They have the same pressures. They have an ageing uh, cohort of, of workers, in the, of vets in the veterinary community. It's similar in many, many other professions. These are the labour force manpower issues that the government faces right across a number of sectors of society that we have to work on. I don't think you're giving free uh, vet care <laughs> to animals of no, Ireland, I, are you? I, I'm, just, I'm just making the, I'm just drawing the, the parallel. Okay, Marie Sherlock. Well, look, I think the first thing to say is Ireland is one of the few countries across Western Europe that doesn't have free access to GP care. So in the Labour Party, we believe there should be free GP care for, for all. But the, the, the key issue is here, the capacity. And we've had a chronic shortage of GPs going back many years now. So, so is this the wrong time to do this? No, no. Look, the thing is, like the cost, as we all know, of going to the doctor now is on average about 65 euros. It, like, is it, it, it's a decision that, you know, people have to think twice about. But the key issue here is we need to look at the model of primary care in this country. We know, and GPs have been saying this for years, particularly in rural areas, but even in Dublin, where I'm based,
it. Like, as if people can't access GP practices, we need the HSE to start directly employing GPs. We need... GPs not to be the sole gateway into primary care. So we need to change the model of care. So yes, it's about training more doctors, but we also need to look because, you know, GPs have said to us that it's it's an issue with regards to setting up new practices. There's IT costs, there's other resource costs. They can't afford to set up GP practices. And then there's parts of the country that are not properly served. And County Monaghan, it's absolutely shocking to think that there isn't a place open at the moment for, for a person trying to come on the And list. Priscilla, this is not the first time I have to say that we've heard this. I mean, there is a history, isn't there? between the GPs and the Department of Health of new schemes <coughs> being announced and GPs finding out through the media. Well, that's throughout the health service, uh, the same with their closing hospital services and saying that patients can go to the bigger hospital close by, but they haven't actually given any extra beds. But yeah, this is a continuing issue with general practice and they have significantly increased training posts in recent years, but GPs were screaming for years about that, about upcoming retirements. And the fact that the population now is 5.1 million and in most uh, counties surrounding Dublin and in Monaghan and areas like that, you cannot get a GP, you cannot go to a new GP practice and that puts more pressure then on out of virus GP services so where will these patients actually go? So yeah, there, there is a, a particular issue with capacity in general practice. But again, the government know that under Sloan to Care, we are extending free GP care across the population. But also Stephen Donnelly made an, an interesting point today. He, he talked about hiring more general practice nurses as well. Um, now, currently they have terms and conditions that they don't particularly think are very fair or equitable compared to other healthcare workers. But they can t they can actually do a lot of work in general practice, such as vaccinations. Um, and care. we need to look at that whole model. Yeah, so there, there are other healthcare workers that can help the GP as part of a team, the same as in the hospital Yeah, and system. I'm just interested too, another thing that Stephen Donnelly said today, Fiona, look, basically, if we entered into negotiations about this before we ever announced it, it would take a hell of a long time. You announce it first and then you negotiate after. Is that fair enough? Because the priority is that six and seven-year-olds and people with that um, household wage get free GP care. That's what they want. That's fine, but the six and seven-year-olds were announced a year ago still hasn't happened, now being re-announced. It's another feature of, of yesterday's budget. You had you could effectively draw a line on two different cohorts in, in which the, the 11 billion was spent. One was cash payments going out to people. That does systems in place between uh, revenue and, and social welfare uh, to facilitate that. The, that's fine. The other aspect was anything where you're talking about expansion of services, there seems to be a, a major sticking point. I was seeing it today across a range of ministers in terms of the number of extra guarantee, the number of houses being built, even something as simple as expansion of school bus services. And likewise, we were seeing it uh, in health, uh, both at, at primary care and, and at, at, at hospital level as well. You've got manpower problems, you've got availability, you've got you've got the cash, but you don't actually have the ability to to deliver upon it. And that's going to be a continual problem with this budget. You're not really confident that all of these measures that, that have been announced yesterday, that you're not going to be sitting there in 12 months' time going, well, were they actually delivered upon? Um, Priscilla, the rest of the budget that looked at the issue of health, I mean, they did address... Waiting lists, didn't they? I don't know if there was much mention about the hospital trolley numbers in A&E. Um, I think they were at a record number in Cork this evening. Were they addressed inadequately in this budget? Well, I suppose those working in the health services say they weren't. And when you look at waiting lists in particular, I mean, we're pushing one million now really for waiting lists. That includes obviously outpatients, inpatients and access to diagnostics. To be fair to the government, in the last couple of years, they've allowed GPs to directly refer for scans and general practice. And they're expanding that next year to other tests as well. So that is really welcome. And that does take some pressure off the hospital system. But again, with our population, with our changing population, older population, they just simply can't keep up with the demand. You know, we have
have the demand is quite outstripping obviously the supply and healthcare worker shortages they're not unique to Ireland they're obviously across the world as well but our healthcare workers are very well trained and they are being attracted abroad and when we hear you know constantly that oh yeah there are negotiations ongoing with the medical unions there doesn't seem to be any sense of urgency to actually resolve that quicker and to actually put the, the you know kind of the structures in place to try and retain and recruit those staff um, that we need but there were some uh, very interesting measures in this budget continuing on from last year uh, women's health measures about 50 million there the introduction of IVF uh, publicly funded IVF next year that's a historic move I mean Ireland is decades behind that we're the only country in Europe that don't fund uh, fertility services um, as it stands and yes it's coming in towards the end of next year but it is finally coming in there is an actual date there so that's to be welcomed and other women's health initiatives as well the removal of VAT from HRT the funding of um, the morning uh, sickness uh, medicine uh, caravan and obviously the expansion of menopause clinics and other health initiatives in that area that is very welcome all right, look, we're going to have to leave it there, but my thanks to Ilona Duffy, Niall Collins, Marie Sherlock, and to Priscilla Lynch. Fiona is going to be staying with me, and we're going to be asking after the break what happened to a gas line that exploded deep under the Baltic Sea. Well, a mysterious underwater explosion has been described by the European Union as sabotage. The Nord Stream pipeline, until recently, one of the key ways for Europeans to get gas from Russia, was rocked by explosions on Monday that poured gas into the Baltic Sea. European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen said the leaks were due to sabotage. Well, I'm joined by Fiona Sheehan and once again by Danica Obeokan. And I'm also joined on Skype this evening by Suzanne Lynch, the Chief Political Correspondent for political. You're very welcome to the programme, Suzanne. I know investigations are at a, an early stage, but generally the feeling seems to be in the EU that the Russians are responsible for this. Of um, tough talk today in Brussels from the Commission President, Ursula von der Leyen, and also Joseph Borrell, the top uh, foreign policy official here in Brussels, saying that this was no accident and that it was most likely an act of sabotage. But they did uh, refrain from specifically blaming Russia. There was no mention of Russia in particular, uh, but they did warn of robust uh, response uh, if this is seen as an act of sabotage. How was this attack carried out without it being seen? What is the speculation? Well, the investigators are looking into this now, but it does look possible that it was some kind of an underwater uh, explosive device that happened that that was there uh, under the seabed and that it could have even been detonated remotely that's one possibility investigators are looking at um, and that it could have been maybe placed there by an underwater drone or a long line so these are the kind of um, probabilities and possibilities investigators are looking at now that pipeline in the Baltic Sea is the one there are two of them um, and they're both they're, they're pairs that connect Russia to Germany through the Baltics. Now, as you point out there, at the moment, there's actually no gas going through those mm. pipelines. Um, that was stopped in Nord Stream 1 earlier this month, and Nord Stream 2 was cancelled before it even got going. However, there is gas, uh, residual gas, in those pipelines. We're hearing this evening now, Denmark is saying that they expect all the gas from those pipelines that are affected by this leak to have been emitted by Sunday. But they're also saying that they believe that the methane emissions from these leaks could account for up to a third of their annual greenhouse emissions in Denmark. So, so that gives a sense of the scale of this problem. 
And the EU has been discussing new sanctions against uh, Russia, including a price cap. Uh, any more detail on that? Yes, um, they were. those discussions were already in train, if you like, and they're the eighth pa sanctions package now by the EU, and they're looking at introducing an oil price cap. This would be in line uh, with what the G7 did uh, earlier in the summer, and now they're trying to get agreement between all 27 EU member states to get an EU version of this, if you like. Friday is a key day because energy ministers are meeting in Brussels. They're going to be talking about more on the um, on the gas and the energy side about possible uh, gas price caps there and that kind of thing. Um, but we are expecting that this issue of the attacks on the Nord Stream pipelines will also be discussed then. All right, Suzanne Lynch from Political, thank you for speaking to us uh, this evening. Uh, Donica, the EU are saying this is sabotage, uh, as we just heard there. Do you believe... Russia responsible for this? And if so, what would their motivation be given the fact that it was never going to interrupt a gas supply? Well, I don't believe that it's Russia because simply the evidence hasn't been produced thus far. And uh, as Suzanne was saying, even the EU are reluctant to call out Russia by name. What they are saying is that it wasn't a casual accident. This was an act of sabotage. So the question is whom? It is very symbolically important because pipelines hardwire relationships. And this was to be a forever relationship between Germany and Russia, kind of signed off. You know, the, the romance was really around cheap gas. And that romance ended with this war in Ukraine abruptly. So it's, 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 it's seen as kind of like a, a symbolic ending point um, that we're never going back to Russian gas. And I think it's important to acknowledge that. If it is Russia, what would they be gaining from it? It, it may be just trying to spook um, you know, the EU, because there are other pipelines in the, in, in the region. So, for example, Norway has opened up a pipeline to Poland uh, in the same region, in the Baltic region. There are those in the Baltic states who have come out and said, and in Poland as well, that this is a form of hybrid warfare, that the Ukraine war is now spreading to the, the Baltic theatre. So they're certainly spooked by it already, even without Russia necessarily um, being called out publicly. Uh, what has been interesting too is Russia's own response. Yes. I mean, they've said that, you know, to be called responsible for it is stupid, but they've also been blaming the US, haven't they? Why? Well, they argue that the US has a vested interest in, you know, ending this relationship between Russia and the EU and that the US has its own self-serving interests uh, in the EU and has never been enthusiastic, which is, is true. They've never been enthusiastic about Russia supplying gas to the EU and to Germany in particular. So they've argued that point and they're calling for a special meeting of the UN uh, to, to discuss this. So they're coming out quite strong on this issue. But that's not to take away from the point that it would be, I think, absurd as well to assume that the US was essentially attacking its NATO allies in the Baltic Sea for no particular reason. Yeah, Fiona, does all EU energy infrastructure feel like a potential target now? I mean, we do see some countries saying that they are going to put their infrastructure on heightened alert at this point. Yeah, and certainly the, the France-Algeria pipeline would be the next one that, you'd, you'd, that the French will now be up upgrading their level of security at. And from our perspective, we do have a number of highly sensitive fibre optic cables going to across the Atlantic, uh, connecting us there. And that's very important from our, our own business and investment perspective. And that's it, how this it, war could play out, well, interrupting those sort of communications. State-sponsored like naval terrorism, basically. Uh, we saw, I mean, we, we were kind of, you know, half amused by the shenanigans off our own uh, southwest coast where the, the Russians were carrying, were due to carry out naval operations there. 
and then called them off. But that was all about uh, heightening tensions, undermining a, 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 a national sovereign government and its authority and basically flexing its muscles. And this seems to be another uh, example of that. So small country like us, we're not going to be able to defend uh, our own territorial waters or any of the infrastructure that we have. So, you know, we're, we're in the fight, where we, we're, we're on one side, uh, and that therefore makes us uh, a potential target in, in scenarios uh, like this. So we may not be part of NATO or any, any form of, of military alliance, but we're certainly going to need the, the, the help and cooperation of our, our colleagues in, in this regard. Uh, I just want to ask you very briefly, um, Dominic, about the referendums, these so-called sham referendums in eastern Ukraine. One of the chancellors there warned that the annexing of these regions, and it looks like that's going to happen, uh, enhances the chances of a nuclear attack. Do you agree that that attack is getting more probable? Certainly, there, there has been an escalation in Putin's speech only a week ago, it seems like a long, long time ago, raised the stakes in that regard by saying that all resources at Russia's disposal will be used to defend Russian territory. And now they're going to argue that these four regions of Ukraine are Russian territory. I don't think it's an understatement or an overstatement to say that this is we're facing the biggest threat of nuclear conflict since the Cuban Missile Crisis of 1962. Um, you know that 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 that's a fact. I mean, like you know, because we have a, a nuclear power which our own Taoiseach describes as a rogue state which is trying to unilaterally redraw the boundaries of Europe by force. We faced this challenge in the 1930s, but Hitler didn't have a nuclear weapon. Putin has a nuclear weapon and he's brandishing it about and saying he might use it. So we, whereas we cannot be overawed by that, we certainly can't underestimate its importance either. All right, uh, unfortunately we have to go. That's it from us this evening, from all the late team here. Good night, thank you to my guests. And you at home, do take care. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series.